All right, gentlemen, looks like we're at time. So get started whenever you're ready. Greetings to all of you guys online. Thanks for joining us as well. And I can't see you. So if you do have a question or comment, uh, is it best to have them? Uh, where's David? Best to have them just speak up, un- unmute and speak up. Feel free to do that if you'd like to uh, interject with a thought or question. So we left off in chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke, looking at the triad of parables in regard to our Lord seeking and saving the lost, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and tonight the lost boy. What I want to do is just run quickly through the context and through the first two parables, even though we covered them, because they really all three should be understood together. They're all of one piece. Before we jump into chapter 15, then, let's be open up with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give thanks and praise to you that your Son is indeed our Good Shepherd who seeks and saves the lost, who gathers together all who have been dispersed from his fold, that there might be indeed a reconciliation and a reconnection and one flock with one shepherd. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us, that we might rightly understand these teachings of your Son, that our hearts may be purified by them, and that we might be enlightened in all of our tasks that you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so again, Luke 15, uh, just getting us back into the context, the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to hear Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling Already Luke subtly makes a contrast between those who are gathered near Jesus to use their ears and those who are gathered near to Jesus to use their mouths. (laughs) There are those who have ears to hear, which is foundational for um, the theology of the parables, that those who receive the plain message, the plain gospel of the Lord, through that word are given ears to hear and they hear and then the The parables are given so that um, those who have may have all the more, while those who reject the plain word of Jesus are given the parables that seeing they may see and hearing they, they, seeing they may not see, hearing they may not hear, and even what they have will be taken away from them. So Luke has woven these themes very subtly together with this contrast, those who draw near to hear Jesus versus those who draw near to speak against him, grumbling. And then grumbling, the concept of grumbling versus joy, grumbling versus celebration, uh, continues to be a theme throughout these three parables. All right, you've got the tax collectors and the sinners, and we really come to see that these are the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The tax collectors are the turncoats. The sinners are those who are rejected by the scribes and Pharisees. They're grumbling against Jesus, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So that's their charge. The Pharisees think that they alone should be received by Jesus, that they alone should be welcome to his table. And they despise the fact that tax collectors and sinners are welcomed in the same way they are. So Jesus tells them the parable, and again, it begins by putting them in the place of the shepherds. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? 
And the lost here is a little bit of strange language. Remember, it's uh, uh, apolos, so destroy or perish, lose. Uh, And that is used as a connecting refrain, that word all the way through, even when it very clearly does mean to perish. Okay, so... Go after the one that is lost until he finds it, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. So in the immediate context, the rhetoric functions like this, like any regular shepherd, if he loses a sheep, is going to go find it, and he's going to bring it home rejoicing. What any shepherd would do for his animal, you're begrudging that I do for people. That's the punchline. He is also, though, likewise, in a sense, uh, allowing themselves to um, come into the shoes of the shepherd and thus also conclude with him that they should rejoice rather than grumble. So that's there as well, this invitation, the Lord trying to win these men. So verse 5, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. A beautiful picture. You know, again, we talked about those three levels. The initial level where he's, it's the rhetoric of those to whom he's speaking directly. A kind of second level of analysis are the words, the specific words and themes that our Lord chooses to draw out that carry with them a a richness and a kind of quality that you can meditate upon it and receive other things. And then likewise, Luke's way of organizing these things within his gospel and the way the things that he draws out in his narratives. So at that secondary level, we can reflect on this as a beautiful picture of the church when a sinner who is lost is discovered by the good shepherd and brought home. And the church in many respects is to be a place, uh, it's, it's likened unto a household, the household owned by the shepherd. And it's a place of rejoicing and joy, and as we're going to see, partying. So a constant place of rejoicing and partying and joy for that which is lost being found. And that's going to stand in stark contrast to the Pharisees who are dour and grumbling and grumpy. And ultimately refusing to come into the party. Okay, then verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And again, just as there, are, Jesus says he comes for the sick, not for the well. Well, there's not a single person who's well. There are only those who think they are well. And likewise, is the parallel here. There are no righteous persons. There are only those who think they are righteous. And in thinking they are righteous, they exclude themselves. So, I, I mean, here is a, a certainly a, a sharp fraud against the arrogance of the Pharisees and scribes and a, and a poignant prodding that they would themselves repent. They're not righteous and their self-deceit that they are righteous. There's no rejoicing in heaven over that. There is rejoicing over heaven in heaven over a sinner who repents and returns. So as with the sheep, there's this restoration or reconciliation, this um, restoration, reconciliation, this conversion, but of that which belonged to the shepherd at one time and was lost and now is brought back to him. 
And that's going to continue with the coin. It was her coin. She lost it. It's restored to her. And it's going to be true with uh, the boy, prodigal son, as we call him, uh, who is lost. He's a son. He's lost. And he's returned to the father. Okay, so we likewise cover the parable of the lost coin. So just, again, very quickly covering those main themes again. At verse 8, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. So again, the immediate punch of the rhetoric is if a woman loses a coin, she's going to go to all these links in order to recover it. But you would begrudge me if I do this for immortal souls. So there's the accusation, the rhetorical punch of the parable. And again, what's in view here is the diligence of the woman, and that's Jesus' construction. So she lights a lamp. He gives us all these details. She lights a lamp. There's cost involved in that. She sweeps the house because, again, you're not talking about houses with modern electricity or you don't put on your headlamp. So she's got her lamp, but it's still dim. And dim enough, she's got to start at one corner of the house and sweep the whole way out. So there's labor. There's dirtiness. There's vigilance. There's all these themes um, that one can reflect on then in a secondary way about how Christ seeks us with his own labor, with his own diligence. All right, so she lights the lamp, sweeps the floor, seeks diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors. Again, this idea of they're all, she's calling them into her house, saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. So this loses, lost language is, again, that language of um, it's destroyed, it's perished, it's lost in the sense of uh, gone forever. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God. So 10, of course, is parallel to 7. There's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And again, I think this is, this is repentance in the sense of conversion. So obviously when we're in the scriptures, we can see repentance has a wide sense and a narrow sense. Repentance in the wide sense is conversion. Repentance in the narrow sense is to be driven by the law into contrition, sorrow over one's sins, and a desire to live in a better way. But here is conversion in the sense of restoration. All right, I think that that covers everything I wanted to cover to bring us back up to speed and try to redraw out those themes from last week. Any any um, any questions or any comments or anything that you saw now that you've sort of marinated in this text for a week? Anything you'd like to draw out? What you went over in Sunday school class, so um, confirms my suspicion. Those that are unsaved are just plain stupid. We went across that <laughs> in the Proverbs. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah, right. Verified that, mm-hmm. yeah. Because every time you, you see the Pharisees and Sadducees, I'm assuming that the lawyers and all that stuff, and they read it and they keep misinterpreting basic, basic things. So I'm assuming that's where. We study the Proverbs. They're stupid. They're going to always be stupid. Yeah, they can't be dead. Yeah, there's a willful 
blindness, a willful stupidity. It's We'll see this when we get to Matthew 25, when we get to the judgment parables, when we get to Matthew 25, and we see the wise and the foolish virgins who, you know, some of them bring oil for their lamps and some of them don't. That entire thing, though, is predicated on are they wise or foolish to begin with? And the wise ones, because they are wise, bring oil. The foolish, because they are foolish, don't. That's it. It's that ontic reality of are you wise or foolish, then that's going to be borne out. And of course, that's are you a sheep or are you a goat? That's going to be borne out. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Okay, so um, the parable of the prodigal son is sometimes called, and it can be a little distorted because there's two sons here. And there are, uh, and, and arguably, of course, the oldest son is the embodiment of the, scri- of the Pharisees and scribes. Let's get into this and let's take our time and let's reflect on uh, these verses. So at 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property or the usius, the substance that is coming to me. Now, if you have a Lutheran study Bible and you go down to the study note on 512, I think that this is an important point. The law allowed this to happen before the father's death. So this is a, this is a technical point, and this does change the way I think we should read this parable, even if only in a subtle way, an important way. So the son, in asking for his share of the usius, the property or substance that is coming to him, he's not here sinning against his father. The law allowed this to happen before the father's death. And the study note likewise says that the younger son could expect one third of the estate. Now, this is exactly then what seems to happen. So, uh, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he that is the father divided, um, cut up, you know, partitioned out his property. But the word here changes and it's worth this is a little minor digression that's worth having. The word here is buy on his life. And he divided his life. So this is actually what's behind the seventh commandment and why theft is so egregious. It's also the rationale behind some states allowing self-defense to extend to one's property. Because what one's property is, is the expenditure of one's life. You labored those hours in the field instead of doing what you otherwise might have wanted to do. You sacrificed your life in order to have that. So when someone steals that from you, they're stealing from you your life. They're stealing from you from the quantity of your time. So it's a deeper way of reflecting on that. And you can see that simply in the language. So he divided his life and by extension, his livelihood, which you can see even there, the semantic connection. And he divides it between them. 
So Art Just, prof from Concordia for Wayne, says that this is an important point. I don't know how much to make of it personally, but that this is an important point that he gives the allotment to both at this time. That it doesn't say he divided his property and gave it to the younger son, gave it to him, but that it, he gave it to them. Worth uh, A detail worth keeping in your mind, particularly when we get to the older son and how he perceives his relationship in the household and how he perceives his father. So he, the state was completely divided up. That's that's art. That's art. Just read on the basis of he divided his property between them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, how much you make of that is up for grabs. I simply br- I simply bring it up because it's worth it. It's worth reflecting on that point when we get to the oldest son's accusations against the father. Yeah. Okay. Because he's going to accuse the father of stinginess and, in fact, of injustice. If it's true that the father, even at this point, already divided out the inheritance, the livelihood, then it makes that statement all the more egregious. And it makes the older son all the more a scoundrel. Okay, so let's just carry on and sort of leave that with a little asterisk in our minds. So he divided his life or livelihood between them. And again, I, I, I will illust- I, I mean, I'll underline this fact that he isn't here sinning against his father. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, which if you're a first century Jew, what is a far country? <laughs> Yeah, Gentile territory. And there may be, I don't want to overread it, but there's there's some implication here. He's going away from the land that God has given him. He's going away from the father that God has given him. He's going away from all those things. Remember the proverb from Sunday? To till the land that has been given you and not go after worthless pursuits. <laughs> very similar, very similar. So, He goes out into a far country, and there he squanders, he diascorpison, and this is a word that then connects with the next parable. We'll talk about that later on. But he squanders or dissipates, separates himself from his property. And here it's the usius again. It's the substance. And he does so in reckless, asotos, wasteful living. And that is then where we get the prodigal son, the reckless or wasteful or prodigal son. Sometimes people want to talk about the prodigal father being lavish and wasteful with his grace, but I think that that's a stretch. Because here it clearly is negative in connotation. All right. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out as a fine translation. And it works. I think it's a little bit more graphic than that. 
he uh, echolethe, he made himself one with and clung to. And I think that visceral language is our Lord's way of showing that he has, he had a father to whom he belonged. And now he's forced to make himself one with and cling to another who is not his father and who indeed is a pagan. So this is sort of the, the first of the, I mean, obviously he's in a different household now. All right. So he made himself one with, I think that's more than hired himself out to, which sort of makes it sound to us like, well, he got a nearby apartment and he went over there and, you know, worked on a K and worked his 40 hours and came home. No, he became one with this pagan in his household and was given this this task to do. One of the citizens of that country, our Lord draws that point out all the more, even though it should be obvious. And he makes it explicit that this is a, not one of the people of Yahweh. All right. He sends him into his fields to feed pigs. So this, of course, if you're a Jew, is to become unclean and to do. Un- so what you, what you see here is you're, we're going to see this sort of threefold defilement that takes place. One, he's not united with his father, who is a, a child of Abraham, a child of God but with this pagan person, this pagan man. And then he is not given to like the tasks that his father would have given to do, which were clean and right and God pleasing and everything else. Now he's got to feed pigs, which is unceremonially unclean and disgusting and dirty and filthy. And then here's the third point that the Lord masterfully draws out. Finally, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate which is a beautiful and masterful way of saying that he envied the status of the pigs. He was himself lower than a pig. He wished he could eat their food. So he's reached the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the barrel. Uh, Your study note will point out that I think these are carob pods regarded as animal fodder and were eaten only by the desperately poor. Okay, so he's longing to eat the pods that they eat, and then we're told that no one gave him anything, or more woodenly, no one was giving to him. So is there any charity here? No. There's no charity. There's no love. We're not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) And so the father's house is juxtaposed with this other house and all its misery and all its uncleanness uh, contrasted with the love of the father and the goodness of what he had. It's worth, it's worth reflecting on since this is restoration. The church fathers almost universally and there's their interpretation. I was refreshing myself on that before I came over. Um, see this as a parable chiefly about those who are baptized who are born into the house of our Heavenly Father, and then who take that and and take their inheritance, as it were, and go out and squander it. So those who leave the fold, 
as we'll see, his sonship remains intact in the Father's eyes, and so does our baptism. There's no need to be rebaptized to become a son again. That baptism, that sonship stands. And they see this as, as for those who depart from their baptism and, and go out, they have to learn that in doing that, there's, there's, no, there's no neutrality. There's no neutral space. You, sooner or later, I mean, in fact, properly speaking, immediately belong to the household of another. You don't belong to your heavenly father's household. You belong to the household of the father of lies. It's that binary reality. There's no neutrality. And so that is a house of servitude, of uncleanness, of lowliness, of finally coming to where you think of the lowly, most unclean, disgusting beasts, and you start to envy their status and position. Okay, so simply thought I'd add that in. That's clearly at the secondary layer of interpretation and meditation on this text. All right, at 17, we have the transition. But when he came to himself, and I think that's just a fine translation. It's great. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? Now, I think that that is, seems like a little subtle detail, and it's easy to go right over it, but I think this is of the utmost importance. Do they have enough bread? More than they don't just have the just reward of their wages. They don't just have what's fair. They don't just have their basic needs met. They have more than enough. What does that say about the father? And what does he learn? What does he reflected upon and learned? Like you don't know what you got till it's gone style. What does he now know about his father that he was completely blinded to before? His father's outrageously gracious outrageously gracious and contrast that with i mean he's not being given anything always uh, think about the feeding of the five thousand afterwards they collected all that extra food. Yeah. <laughs> that's right that's right yeah 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 in one case 12 baskets full and another seven yeah as if to say there's there's bread enough for more it says they were all Eaten till, they all ate till they were satisfied. Yeah, absolutely. Great reflection. Yeah. Great reflection. I really like that connection here. But it's also, this reminds me of Hollywood. You go to Hollywood and they're all a bunch of creeps. And as soon as your money or your fame is gone, you're feeding with it. Oh, yeah. That's despicable. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Two different households, starkly contrasted. And he starts to realize what he had, but what he was blind to. So he comes to himself. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread that I perish? And now here again is that exact word for being lost. So it's all interconnected even with the language that Jesus chooses. I perish here with hunger. I will arise, anastas, which is not the typical word for arise. And this is, again, we've talked about the secondary level of how Jesus 
freights his words, this is the word that's most commonly used for resurrection. And I think it's absolutely fitting because what's taking place here, and the father's going to spell it out for us. My son who is dead is now alive again. Like St. Paul in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses, but he made us alive in Christ Jesus. Or uh, from a couple weeks ago, um, that text in Ezekiel with the dry bones. And then after that really visceral vision of the dry bones, God says, this is the house of Israel. And what's really in view, there's a spiritual resurrection that precedes the physical resurrection. So this spiritual resurrection is of the utmost importance. It's given to us, of course, um, by God as a gift, by grace alone. And so this, when he arises, I think the Lord would have us at least contemplate that this is more than just, well, he got up. <laughs> that this is, in fact, a spiritual resurrection that's taken place. And what would be the source of that resurrection? The source that Jesus gives us is the, med- is the thought of his father's abundant graciousness that he gives his servants more than enough bread. We would call that gospel. So I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you. No, he doesn't say that because strictly speaking, he hasn't sinned against his father. Now, so in, a, in a connected way, he has. I don't mean to make too stark of a point or strong of a point about this, but he recognizes that his sin wasn't in asking his father for the inheritance. His sin was what he did with that inheritance, and it's chiefly a sin against God in heaven. Now, that has effect with him and his in in his household, in his relationship with his father. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's not on the basis of him asking for the inheritance, on the basis of what he did with the inheritance. It's on the basis of his departure from his father's house, to be sure. I'm not no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, it's in the history of interpretation of this verse, it's only a later development, a post-Reformation development, that anyone sees this as a theory of self-righteousness, that he thinks he's got to, again, I think it's predicated upon this sort of misplaced idea that he's primarily sinned against his father, so he primarily owes his father a debt, so he's going to come in and pay for that debt, but you see how that's off? Like too or too much has been based upon that. So this idea that this is somehow like what the Lutherans call the opinio legis, this desire within ourselves to justify ourselves. And so here he is justifying himself. Here he's trying to pay a debt back to his father. He's none of that really makes sense if you reflect on it. And in fact, virtually the entirety of the pre-Reformation readings of this text, along with um liturgical elements in use show this to be uh, the proper state of humility. I think to further strengthen that point and that read um, would be, what is he supposed to say? Hi, Dad, I'm back. Yeah. 
But I think you ought to treat me like a son. <laughs> but he says he's in heaven, and then he's before you. So he's talking about two different things. He's talking about yeah. yeah. You expected more from me, from his father. But he's also saying, hey, God expected more from me, too. It blew everything. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, exactly. I think that that's where the emphasis is on. I think if you place it as like the emphasis is on the him sinning against the father, then you've got the emphasis on the wrong syllable. And that subtle little twist is going to affect then the way you read and understand the parable. And I don't think it's going to land you in a great place. If his sin is chiefly and primarily against the father, and he comes back to the father's house, if somebody confesses their sins against you, what should you do? Notice that the father never forgives him. He never says, I forgive you. But rather, because the father is gracious, because he knows who his father is. The father is gracious because he knows the heavens to be gracious. And he knows that the heavens have been gracious to him. And that's shaped and formed his graciousness. So that when the son comes and says, I've sinned against heaven and before you and in your presence. Then he knows what to do. Not speak like, well, I forgive you, son. I mean, that's not what he says. He never says that. But he knows how heaven works. That's how he works. And so when he says, I've sinned against heaven, he doesn't say, well, in the stead and by the command of heaven, I absolve you. Okay. But he does say, I know how heaven works. I know who I am in light of how heaven works. This is what I will do for you. Thus the wrapping with the robe, the shodding with the sandals, the placing of the ring on his finger, etc. Okay. So I think. Yes, please. Yeah. Keith here. Um, I noticed to me, there's like a sense that this parable is as much about the father as it is the son in that um, aside from the inheritance, you remember when Jesus said what father would, when his son comes to him hungry and asks for bread, will he give him a rock or, or a serpent? Will he or ask for a fish? He'll give him a serpent. I think that's in um, Luke 11 or something, but you know, uh, he was given an inheritance, but he's still his son. He's still hungry, so it doesn't matter. He's still going to give his son, meet his perishing need, which is, in this case, it's hunger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah, point, uh, point well taken. benefit. And I think, you, yeah, point well taken, and I think you're right. If you look at how the parable starts, there was a man. That's the father. And then when we get to the key transition between the sons, uh, which takes place at verse 25. Now his older sons, so the center of the parable is always the father. And it's how the father deals with these two sons. And so you're exactly right that this father is, I think in the first place, on the first level, rhetorically, the, the fa- this father is exactly what Jesus is doing. And that the Pharisees and scribes despise and grumble against Jesus. We're going to see the older son despise and grumble against the father. So I'm right there with you. I think, I think this is Jesus. And of course, Jesus represents uh, God the Father. And so you're, you're right. You're exactly right on there. 
Does this, it seems like this is a good example of repentance. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, um, yeah, when he comes to himself. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly parallel to in the previous parallels, or excuse me, in the previous parables. Yeah. There is uh, the angel, there's more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We even kind of talked about, remember, and I think this is worth meditating on, that there's these three different pictures of repentance here. The the sheep, what is the lost sheep, what does his repentance look like? (laughs) He's trying to get himself more lost, (laughs) and the shepherd scoops him up. Um, Now, the coin, what is the coin doing? Sitting there inertly, neither for nor against, just dead, dead in the dark dust. Until swept up, cleaned up, and restored. Okay, and now what do you have this? What do you have this son doing? He comes to himself, and I think that's an intentional element. It's a, it's yet another picture or snapshot of repentance as it's experienced. If Jesus didn't like that, what could he have done? The father saddled up his horse and went into the foreign land and said, "My son, what has happened?" and scooped him up and carried him home. I think our Lord's very intentional here with these three different aspects of what repentance looks like, or at least how existentially we experience it and and come to know it in the scriptures. In one sense, repentance is Christ coming like the good shepherd and capturing me and putting me on his shoulders so that I don't keep running and don't run away again. And repentance is likewise me hardly adding anything to it. I'm just dead like a coin in the dust. And he comes and sweeps and finds and picks up. And then, obviously, the son comes to himself meditating upon the grace of the father that he left behind. And so it's the father's action. It's the father's graciousness in providing more bread to the servants than they even need that triggers this whole repentance and this whole arising resurrection and journeying home. Okay? So there's nothing like synergistic here. There's nothing Pelagian here, which is this idea of conversion is some aspect of God's effort and our effort combined. That's how we're saved. I think Jesus has precluded that. But in terms of how we experience it, it's come to your senses, come to yourself, recognize who your heavenly father is and return home. We can do we can do all that just as our Lord does all that without a hint of Pelagianism or semi Pelagianism or synergism. Pastor, Pastor, um, okay, what? Yeah, one second. Is that you, Brad? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was just wondering in the, uh, the 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 this parable, you can see the the law at work, but the first two, uh, how does the law enter into that? Um, are you, are you saying with the, uh, lost sheep? You say he's tra- trying to get further away. Okay. And so he's yeah. not confronted with the law or the coin is just sitting there, yeah. not necessarily convicted of anything. I don't know. No. Uh, the, 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 but the son is definitely convicted of his situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And I, I don't know what to say other than that's just a difference. I'm not sure that mm-hmm. Jesus has anything he's really intentionally drawing out with those differences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
maybe one of you sees something there that I'm not seeing. Um, you've just got these different circumstances and, and truth be told, you know, I'm sort of, I'm sort of loading and freighting myself an intentionality of the, of the lost sheep. I'm doing so via Isaiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has followed his own way. So that's what I'm up to there. Mm-hmm. And maybe we should just note that Jesus doesn't explicitly state that kind of thing. Okay. But okay. I'm going to say when I see the sun, though, you go back, it says that he's come to his senses, and but he's remembering. Um, he says, I will no longer be worthy of your son. It reminds me of what uh, Jonah did. Jonah knows God so much, and the son knows his father so well. Because remember, that's the thing that gets me with Jonah. He says, when he's sitting under the tree, and he says, I know you were a good God. You were going to save people, and he's upset. And I can understand where Jonah's coming from. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, you're a good God. You're always saving these people. You're always doing good. Yeah, he, he, knows, uh, he knows who his father is. So into himself he comes. It's uh, what is he? What is he? I mean, I don't mean to overread the text, but what is he in the parable? What is his de- what is his identity? He's the son of the father. So in coming to himself, he's recognizing I am not a servant of the pig farmer. <laughs> I am a son of this man, my father. So that would be, I think, the way to understand he comes to himself. He comes to his senses on the basis of who his father is and who he was as his father's son. I think, too, that this is, you know, why it's plausible why he wants to go as a servant, because he goes, my father is so gracious. It's not my place to come back and claim the place of a son. It's my I know who I know I am his son. I'm not I'm not worthy to be called his son you see that subtle difference too i know that i am his son but i'm not worthy to be called his son and so in humility he comes and says let me be as one of your servants and the father doesn't correct this the father doesn't say oh look now you're heaping sin upon sin not only did you depart from my house but now you're trying to justify yourself I mean, there's no corrective whatsoever. I think that this is, especially culturally, I think this is the right and proper mode. I want to be, I, I want to be part of your house, but I'm unworthy to be called your son. The only thing left is to be your servant, and I'm happy to be that. But of course, the father's not going to have that. Okay, so. Maybe just to pick back up at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt it's that splagnitzo word, that inner compassion that is attributed to Jesus so frequently and has as its root the sacrificial language of Israel the sacrifice being made. So he has compassion, this deep emotion of um, pity. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran 
and embraced him. So even while he was a long way off, he ran to him. Um, you know, depending upon the ages of the people involved here, this might uh, be an. Uh, some people say that this is like not a dignified thing for a man of this time and place and age to do. That may well be the case. He just that might, and that would only heighten the picture, heighten I, the drama. Had to gird his loins or something, it, mm-hmm. and it wasn't like respectful to do that or something. Yeah, yeah pull up his, thing, yeah. You know, his robe or whatever mm-hmm. it was, and this older man to be out there doing that was mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think they're all kind of fine reflections to think about what does it mean to run in that time and place and culture. Yeah, it's. I think it's fine to reflect on those things. Um, be it as it may, they're not entirely necessary. Um, he has compassion. He runs. He embraces his son. It's just this, you know, incredibly beautiful image. There's no, hey, I've got to get him cleaned up first. There's no rebuke. He's already embracing him and kissing him. And again, I think here you can see the real strength of the church fathers preaching that this is. He immediately recognizes him as his son. And doesn't have any questions or any presuppositions or any conditions. He embraces him for what he is and he loves him as his son. So that's the image of what it is to return to the father, to be restored to the father, like the sheep that was lost from the shepherd to be restored, like the coin that was lost from the woman to be restored to her. Now to be the son lost to the father, to be restored to him. Where does Jesus teach that we're justified by grace through faith apart from works? Everywhere, but especially right here. So Jesus teaches this everywhere. He just doesn't use that language. He just doesn't come right and say, he just doesn't come out and say, hey, hey guys, I'm going to do justification right now. Okay. He just does it. It's integrated into all of his stories. It's integrated into his actions. And it's, it's exactly what the father does here. I like how there's no questions yeah. asked. He just, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He just uh, doesn't care about that. He, know, you know, he just cares about mm-hmm. the son. Yeah, exactly so. Exactly so. All right, he embraces him, he kisses him, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now, does the father even address this? No. But again, the father isn't gracious in a vacuum. The father is who he is because he knows how the heavens are. He knows how the heavenly father is. So the father does not speak directly to his son. Least of all, does he correct him in some way? But he says to his servants... Bring quickly the best robe. So not just any robe, but the best robe. It's hard to know what exactly that means. Um, It is biblically reminiscent of the, the robe given to Joseph that showed that he was the favorite son. So maybe more than anything, it's a nod to that biblical reality that here the love of the father is saying, not only do I recognize you as my son, you're my beloved son. So the best robe, wrap it around him, put a ring on his hand, 
Um, the ring was usually like the family signet ring. And so that's, I think, what's in view. So this would be like your authority to conduct business on behalf of the family. You could even, it's kind of, all, it's almost like a credit card. <laughs> you can pay your, you can purchase things with your, so, I mean, so I, I think that that's a kind of an important detail there, um, that that's the, that's what the ring is. It's not just decorative. And he puts shoes on his feet. And of course, you can read stuff into that culturally too. Um, this distinction that he would not be a servant, but would be a son. That may well be in view. Anyway, he dresses him from head to toe in the garb of the son. And they says, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. But, and here is just a, a slight miss. It's a thusen, which is sacrificial language. Sacrifice it. I mean, if this was the roadie standard version, it would read, bring the fattened calf and sacrifice it. And this is why the, you know, the church fathers here want to see like even an image of Christ being sacrificed, an image of um, the Lord's Supper, the once and for all sacrifice laid out to eat the reconciliation. They wanted to play with those images because of that Athusian language, that language of Thusius sacrifice noun or Athusian to sacrifice the fattened calf. And let us eat and celebrate you Franthromen, which is, I love this, to be put in a good frame of mind. <laughs> so to celebrate is to be put in a good frame of mind. Now, here's the interpretation. For this, my son was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. And they began to be put in the right state of mind to celebrate. All right, so the whole house is celebrating. We get more details even as we transition. Verse 25, now his older son, as I pointed out a minute ago, the father is still the center. So I would agree with that. I just maybe don't know if I'd call him the prodigal son, the merciful, or the, or the prodigal father, the merciful father, certainly. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So we're given more detail. And this is, you know, expense and party and rejoicing and all of that, again, is uh, contrasted with the Pharisees who are grumbling and who become part of this parable in the verses to come. So 26, he called one of the Pidon children and asked what these things meant. It's odd that he would do that. I mean, maybe it's just a detail, but why wouldn't he just walk in? It sounds like a good time, doesn't it? He's kind of a grumpy, graceless guy, even at the outset. I don't know. It sounds like there might be a good time in there. I think I'm going to investigate further before I jump in. What reason does he have to believe that his brother's returned home? No reason. So it's kind of odd that he's just like, hey, that sounds like a good time. I should probably avoid it. Hey, what's going on in there? Yeah, that's... Don't mean to overread it, but it is interesting. All right. At 27, he said to him, and here we really need to pay attention because the way the Lord has constructed this is masterful and thought-provoking. What does the father say? He doesn't say, my son has come. He says, your brother 
And the tip off to that, to its importance is look how he, ref- yeah. So yeah, it's your, it's, wait a minute. Did I mess that up? Let me think about this. And he said to him, sorry, this is still the kid talking. Maybe I messed this up. The kid said to him, your brother. Yeah. So your brother has come and your father has, yeah, this is the first time we hear this language. I think I just got ahead of myself, but this language, your brother and your father is what's in view. So we're going to see this played out in the, on the lips of the father in just a minute. So your brother has come and your father has again, sacrificed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. So now this is just like the Pharisees and scribes who grumble saying this man receives sinners and does what with them? Eats with them. And that's exactly what's going on here. So this is Jesus incorporating the scribes and the Pharisees together into this firstborn son. So he was angry and refused to go in. Now, just as the father ran to the first son when he saw him and embraced him and kissed him, it's the father who comes out to this son, this son who won't enter the party. So if being, remember remember the sheep and the coin, when they come in, the party starts. And now the lost son has come in and the party has started. Will this son come in that the party can have the fullness of, of the familial joy? That's the question. So he refuses to go in. So the father comes out to him and entreats him, which is fine. Parakale'e, which is begged. That, I mean, that's all right at the heart of that, what that word means. So implored, pleaded with, begged him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have slaved for you. What does he see? Does he see himself as a son of the father? No. He sees himself as a slave when in fact he's a son. Does he see his father's graciousness? He's overblown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is. He's definitely overblown. Yeah, I mean, he, he he's a jerk. There's no way of putting anything around him. He's a jerk. Yeah. So, it's, you ask, yeah. like, is he? Does he know his father or whatever you just said? It's yeah. like, yeah, he wanted a calf, or what was it? he wanted a calf mm-hmm. too? If he wanted one, why didn't he ask? Him? You know, yeah, he wants like, to you, go. Your father, your father's mm-hmm. gracious rather than like being resentful for your father. Yeah. He would have probably yeah. given him one if he asked. And plus, right below that, I know I'm getting ahead a little bit. Mm-hmm. He what he describes his brother as the son of yours. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's you've got two things going on before that. <laughs> you have you're saying the servant is a young kid coming out to him. So everybody else's party. And having a good time. Why is he coming up and not even joining in right away? Mm-hmm. Yeah, why not? He's got an attitude. He's got an attitude. And he doesn't see, he doesn't like the joy. No. He doesn't like his father. He resents his status in the household and he views himself as a slave. But he isn't. No, clearly not. Clearly not. So think about the Pharisees. Do, do they think that they're in the Father's household? Do they think they're in the household and kingdom of God? Yeah, they do. 
Do they know their father? Not really. They don't like him. They view uh, his graciousness as unjust. They grumble that he eats, that Jesus eats and drinks with sinners. They grumble that heaven rejoices over repentant sinners. He, if, if he views his father as gracious, he doesn't like that graciousness. He perceives it as injustice. injustice. He's going to accuse his father of injustice, but it's all predicated on his own worldview that he sees himself not as a son, but as a slave. That's the, and that's effectively what Jesus is saying to the scribes and Pharisees. The sinners and tax collectors see themselves as sons of the kingdom. That's why they are drawing near to hear, to be received. You see yourselves as slaves. And all of this, then, let's just go a little further because I, I don't need to prove the point when Jesus himself does. So look what he says. I um, Look, these many years I have slaved for you, and I never disobeyed your command. Does that sound like the Pharisees? Oh, yeah, yeah, it does. Yet you gave me, uh, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. How's he viewing this young goat and celebrating with his friends? He's lying. He, I, think, I think he is lying, and I think you're right that he's never asked. I think he views it as it's owed to him. Yeah, but like, he, he, got, he has his estate, and on his part of the estate, he got goats, cows, chickens, and things. So he's coming along like, oh, it's, I'm not good enough. I want even more. Yeah. And I'm thinking, what a self-centered, selfish welfare. He has his own, but he doesn't. He's like that person that when, you know, David's confronted by Nathan. Yeah. Hey, I, this little sheep of mine, it was a friend of that thing, and the rich man came and stole it, and, and what is David? That's what this guy's doing. I think you're right. I think we have yet another example of um, what I've been calling parables of disgust. That the entire punchline of the parable is you should be disgusted by this person and cease being him. <laughs> so, yeah, so the the idea that, you know, uh, these people who are invited to the king's feast and they refuse, you hear that you're meant the intention is to be disgusted by them. The man who refuses to wear the wedding garment and comes in his ex- unacceptable clothing, you're meant to be disgusted by him. You're meant to be disgusted by this son so that in whatever ways you may be like him, you cease to be like him. And that's certainly his point to the scribes and Pharisees. So we would say this is delivering the law in its full sternness, showing them the mirror of the law, who they are and how they're acting in all of its ugliness. Okay, so I've slaved for you. I never obeyed. I, I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a goat. I think that there's a meritorious sense like, look, you owed me this stuff and you never gave it to me. And of course, what's the father going to say? He's going to say, look, everything I have, all of it is mine that is yours. Like the, you're, you've missed the point that this is graciousness. Like if you would have asked, I would have gave it. You think you're owed it. And you've got this imaginary bill of say, you know, this imaginary transaction going on your mind, on in your mind that I've never balanced the books. And so you're going to accuse me of injustice, which is preposterous. Everything I've had is given to you. But again, I think the father is profoundly tender and patient. 
So even even here, while we're disgusted with this man, and we're disgusted because we see parts of him in ourselves, the father remains tender and merciful, albeit firm. So at verse 30, as you pointed out, Scott, and as I was getting ahead of myself, this the the names and labels that are used here are masterfully done by Jesus and important. But when this son of yours came, what what, what should he have said? When my brother, but he doesn't, so he doesn't even see him as a brother. So this is this is how twisted and hateful this is. So in the same way, the scribes and the Pharisees don't see the tax collectors and sinners as their brothers. Yeah. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your buy-on, again, your life, your livelihood with prostitutes, it's a question. It's generally not disputed that he did this, but it is a question because we're not told that specific detail. When the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you sacrifice the fattened calf for him. So here's the charge. You're a fool. You're unjust. I've slaved for you and you haven't given me my due. This son of yours, does he see himself as the man's son? I don't know. Probably not. Okay. And he said to him, so now we get the father's response in the end of the parable. And he said to him, Technon, child, which son is fine, you are always with me. It's an incredible statement. I think what he's saying is, do you not recognize that you are in my house? And as he says, all that is mine is yours. Like you've misunderstood the whole thing. It's all graciousness. It's all gift. It's all yours. You don't have to earn it. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. And here's the, here's where the father heard father's got sharp ears. He heard this son of yours and he corrects it right here for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, it ends abruptly. Does this son come in or not? No. And that's the, well, this is the, I, I think you're right. <laughs> and why I think, do the Pharisees and scribes come in or not? And insofar as they don't, I think you're right. But that's that's the way in which Jesus ends. So it's kind of a master class in rhetoric is the story ends abruptly. We don't know if the son comes in and Jesus is po- like, I think what he's effectively saying here without saying it is, how does the story end? That's what he's saying to the Pharisees and the scribes. How does the story end? And so I think this is a beautiful way. And also, it also kind of illustrates the flexibility that we we should have in our preaching and the flexibility we should have in our ears when like, I don't know, he didn't end on gospel. Anyone going to accuse Jesus of not allowing the gospel to permeate this whole thing? So how does the story end? It ends on, pretty profound law and an open question. I think it's a brilliant way to end a sermon. And obviously the gospel predominates. And if the son 
here's these were, or should I, yeah. So if the Pharisees and scribes hear these words and are disgusted by this image of themselves, then they should cease to be that. Welcome their brother, understand that they're not slaves, but sons and come into the party. In other words, stop sitting out there and grumbling and come in and start rejoicing. Why don't you eat and drink with us? For these sinners are your brothers. They've been given everything. The son has that son that they come in was given everything. He has his own fields, his own thing. There's no excuse for his being an adult not going. <laughs> yeah. Please say one more comment. Yeah, so one thing I realized reading this right now is like um how when you spend a lot of time um you know meditating on the word of God and those sort of things, you, you kind of Holy Spirit kind of opens your eyes more um, because I guarantee when I first read or heard this parable, I probably sympathized with the older son Mm -hmm. more than I do now. Mm -hmm. And it's just interesting the change that happens. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of that, that happens frequently with the parables where we sympathize with the bad guy. And I think what we're really doing is kind of a sort of deep spiritual thing where we're seeing those characteristics in us and, you know, hoping that, well, he should have grace and mercy. We want grace and mercy. But another reason for that, a more rational reason for that too, as opposed to sort of emotional or spiritual is just this thing that we've lost the idea of that Jesus preaches parables of disgust, where the intent is, look at this villain, don't be like him, (laughs) which is, which is an effect to be to repent, to be converted, to come into the kingdom and be a regenerate son of God, be enlightened. They, they forget that, okay, that they're sinners as well. See, mm-hmm. they forget that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, and even though this guy ran off with all the inheritance and squandered it, yeah, he was sinning, he did the wrong things, but yet you've got to look at yourself again. You got to look back at yourself and go, well, I'm just, I'm no better than he is. I, I sin every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah. Pastor? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yes, please. Oh, I was wondering, how, how would you view these two brothers in view of objective and subjective justification? Um, you want to, you want to offer just a little bit of a refinement? Just um, what exactly well, specifically? I, I'm thinking, the, the the son that that left, mm-hmm. he obviously they're both objectively justified, and then he he may have because he re, he remembered what he had. He may have been uh, may have been re, uh, more than redeemed, but uh, also subjectively justified. And then he lost it. He lost that, like Hebrews, not not Hebrews, but he he, he lost it anyway. But the older son. Had only objective uh, uh, justification and never really possessed real salvation. Uh, yes. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah I, th- I think so. I think so. Even though the language, the the um, what would I say? The um, well, let me. Yeah, I think so. So, so objectively, he's a son. That's parallel to objective justification mm-hmm. in the house. He rejects that objective reality of his sonship. That's the subjective justification being lost. Right. Sense, Brad. And then this other, this other son, uh, 
he is objectively a son. He's objectively justified. He's objectively forgiven and and welcome in the house. But he doesn't receive that. And so he is uh, subjectively not justified. Right. He doesn't believe that. He believes something else. Now, the, the fallen son comes to faith and is restored to that original objective justification, his sonship. The question left open is, will the older son likewise be converted and come back in? So yeah. that kind of the reflection you had in mind? There? Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. So if you're, and that's kind of the irony, if you refer to this as the parable of the lost son, as I have done, there's actually two lost sons. And by the yeah. end of the parable, there's only one lost son, and he's not the one we usually think of as being lost. Yeah. It's the older son who's the only lost son at the end of the parable. And the parable's left rhetorically of, will you come in and recognize your sonship? Okay, I, we're way over time, and I'm sorry. I want to be respectful of everyone here so they don't feel awkward if they need to go. Let's wrap up, and if you want to continue to chat about it, I'm more than happy to do that. Or if you see things differently, more than happy to hear you out on that too. So uh, let's simply close with praying the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Hey, thank you guys online for joining us. Hope you have a great evening.